0: Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Creative Endeavor podcast. Let me ask you something. Who really stands out to you on your creative journey as a mentor, as a coach, as somebody who pushes you to be better? For me, that answer is very simple. It's my father, Tom Tischler. I grew up with a wildlife artist, a renowned sculptor. And so I was very lucky to have some really fantastic art education from the outset. I wanted to have my father on the podcast as a guest because I knew he'd be able to tell some fantastic stories, but also be able to share with us some of his strategies for success within his art business. Now, my dad is actually one of the most successful artists I've ever known. He does incredibly well with his bronze wildlife sculptures. He's very much one of these guys from the old school. He hasn't embraced any of the new technologies we have at our fingertips today. And so I wanted to hear from him, not only stories from his past and how he came up and managed to make it as a sculptor, but how some of these old school approaches to business could help the new school. This interview was a lot of fun. It was a real pleasure having my dad on the show, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. Without further ado, this is The Creative Endeavor. Well, Tom Tischler, Dad, welcome to the podcast. Um, Why don't you just start us off with telling us about your story and how you got into sculpting in the first place? Well, son, (laughs) um,
1: my story and how I got into this in the first place. Hmm. Well, I've always been an artist. I was aware that I was an artist before I ever started school. That came pretty naturally. My mother was an art history teacher and an artist, a frustrated artist, as most artists are, and she found the only way she could monetize her uh, passion for art was to teach. Hmm. So art history. And uh, and so that meant that I came into this being aware of art history before I could form complete sentences. And one of the driving things in my life as a small child was Gardner's art through the ages. And And before I could walk properly, I could pull myself up to the coffee table, and there was Gardner's Art Through the Ages, and it stayed on that coffee table uh, during my mother's entire adult life. So until I was wh- I was very far an adult, Gardner's Art Through the Ages lived on that coffee table. It was central to, to my life, I'm not sure it was, I'm sure that she knew every page in it, but it was. It became central, may not have been central to her life because I never saw her refer to it, but I was always looking at it. And I was particularly drawn to, attracted to uh, the prehistoric art section. And I, I just loved those cave paintings at Altamira and Lascaux. And I just thought that was the best art ever. And even as a small child, I was aware we had started out doing some wonderful things and it had gone straight downhill from there. Uh, so, I mean, it, that's a mindset that I've never gotten
0: over. Yeah. Um, so I'm still very taken with with primitive art I will just I'll just insert something right there because wasn't it Pablo Picasso who went to Altamira and they came out and said we've learned nothing exactly yeah exactly I, I, and yeah.
1: and of course Altamira and Lascaux were touted for decades as being the at 15,000 years old they were touted as being the oldest true artwork of mankind. Mm. I mean, this was it. This was as old as it got. Mm. And now, in the last few decades, we have found work like the Chauvet Cave, mm. which has better artwork in it, yeah. mm. better anatomy, better skill and craftsmanship, mm. a much better body of work for whatever artist or artists... Mm. And to me, there's such similarity that I think this may be the work of one individual. Wow. Even though it's, they say that it spans thousands. Of, but listen, this, this, artists have personal styles, mm-hmm. and there's a great deal of consistency on the walls at Chavot. Mm-hmm. And that, the art at Chavaux dates to 40,000 years. More than twice as old as Lascaux mm. and Altamira. Mm. And, uh, that, and, the, you know, still that stuff, just all of that primitive artwork speaks directly to my soul. Yeah. And, and that's, and, and I didn't want to go paint on the cave wall, but I was definitely interested in that. And like any other small child, I was wild about dinosaurs and, uh, and that extended on to being wild about woolly rhinoceros and mammoths and aurochs and all of these primitive giant beasts, uh, Galyptodon, the giant armadillo and things. And I just thought, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful to see those things? But uh, so so I, I mean, I was an artist. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I was always provided with art material, and allowed to do my thing and just keep doing it, and I did. I used up lots and lots of paper, and lots of pencils, and crayons, and chalk, and eventually was into charcoal, and watercolor, and then oil, and so forth. I mean, it was always there for me to do, and it simply allowed me to move into that naturally, Mm-hmm. But I have to say without guidance. Yeah. Now, and yeah. I have to I I have to say that this is could be positive and negative. My mother did not attempt to direct me. And the thoughts she had, without ever enunciating it, were that uh it was more important that I learned how to communicate nonverbally through art than it was for her to tell me what to communicate in other words it's more important how you think than what you think yeah and she didn't attempt to influence me in one direction or the other
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I I and I carry
0: that with me as a central philosophy so you you had you know, you had the access to this stuff as a child. You were you were getting stuck into your creative practice without direction, as you're saying. But it was certainly something that was encouraged within your house. That's actually very rare, especially for the '50s. That's an incredibly rare thing because I'm I'm talking to people all the time, and and the emails uh, that I'm receiving, I, I get a lot that come from people even now in this day and age. I want to be an artist, but my mom and dad won't let me. They say, you're going to go into advertising or engineering. or you are going to be a doctor? Mm -hmm. Because we all know you can't make any money doing art. So was this something that was encouraged as just a mere hobby for you as a child? Or was it something that you announced to your parents? Hey, I'm going to be this when I grow up. No, I think I started this before I was capable
1: of enunciating it, Mm -hmm. of announcing it to my parents verbally. Mm -hmm. In other words... I just got my pencils and, and or modeling clay and I just flat got into it.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's what I did. And I occupied myself that way for hours mm. and went into my own internally constructed fantasy world and did my drawings and my sculptures and whatever. And, and other kids play other ways and that's what I did to entertain myself. It's what I related to. But what you just said is important about parents saying, don't do this. My father sort of stood back and didn't direct me either. He just stood back. He was very supportive, but he just stood back and watched. And I think that that that's important. Uh, But when I decided that I really wanted to be an artist and finally said that, which would have been in high school.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: My mother simply at that point said, All right, this has gone far enough. We'll put an end to this nonsense right now. She put her foot down and said, I'm sorry, Uh, you are not going to become an artist. I know artists. I work with artists. I work in the art community. Artists starve to death. You are very creative and very talented. You will become an architect. Wow. Wow, thanks, Mom. Wow. Just what I wanted. But I had enough respect in, what, in her perspective on it and was practical enough to say, well, maybe she's right. Maybe that's what I need to do. And consequently, when I got to the University of Texas, I went into architecture school. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that that helped my art immeasurably. It It taught me to think logically. It taught me to think in an organized way. It taught me to discipline myself and to organize myself and to focus on uh, what I wanted to achieve. And it taught me about planning. Hmm. And without that, I don't know how the hell I would have made it as an artist when I eventually did become an artist.
0: Yeah. So when you were at the University of Texas, you know, and you're you're learning all of these these new things. Can you give me some maybe a, a specific example how something that you were learning within your university course really directly benefited something in particular about your particular artistic process? Well, absolutely. In fact, that term artistic process, right.
1: came out of a discussion I had with a close friend who was a year ahead of me at university and he was had been listening to some lecture and he was expounding pontificating on this concept of the art of the creative process. Now he was talking specifically about architecture mm-hmm. and that there is a there is a creative process that you could employ. Well, this was a new concept for me. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so I was was very interested that that perhaps there was some methodology that would help me be more creative. And, And so I embraced that totally. And then when I became an artist, I took, I found, through experience... That there were lots of methodologies separate methodologies like the artistic process like project management Mm -hmm. like business planning Mm -hmm. like risk management or financial planning that applied directly to me as an artist and and i was able to have enough perspective on this enough distance from it to realize This is said that what I have learned is actually for architecture, but I can modify the methodology to fit this other trade. Mm -hmm. Art is art being a separate trade, Mm -hmm. although very close to architecture. Mm -hmm. I mean, they share a lot of similarities. In fact, if you look at, if you look at, uh, architectural, the, 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 art, the architectural history textbook of monuments of architecture and compare that to Art Through the Ages, the, the art history book, you, uh, you realize that there's a very soft and blurry line. In fact, much of the art in the art history book is on the walls of those monuments. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And so there's it. There's a blurring of that. It's it's a, co- a continuity there. So that's not a it's not a long reach. But I did. I was pulled out of that uh, out of the art world and put into um a, into a, a field with much more rigor, rigorous training. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was. I don't think just highly beneficial, I think that was critical to my
0: eventual success as an artist. Absolutely critical. I don't think I could have done it without it. It's interesting because, you know, so while, while you're in your architecture course, are, are you, were you thinking this stuff at, at the time going, okay, look, I'm here now, I can see the practicality behind what my mother is saying, I'm here now, I'm studying, this is going to help me be a better artist, or are you only seeing that benefit in retrospect?
1: I'm only seeing the benefit in retrospect. At the time, my focus was on
0: being a better architect. Yeah. So you had full on—you had jumped into this new thing, and, I, and that was your I, intention at the time to be an architect. For yeah, absolutely. Wow. But, I
1: mean, look—I had just come through a period of my, my entire time in the in the in high school. My focus was: I'm going to become. Uh, I'm going to become a veterinarian. Because my father was He's a veterinarian. Mm. So I I was thinking that, and I worked for my father in his clinic as a kennel hand, as a veterinary assistant, you know, hold the cats while they get their vaccination, hold the dog while its foot is bandaged or whatever. I mean, I, I, I did that for years. Mm-hmm. And, and I see some real interest in similarity there because during... Those high school years and before, I was really involved in animal anatomy. And here again, we see a, a correlation, a, a, a juxtaposition that's, that's hard, to, hard to say. How, how much did that help? Hell, I, I know my anatomy. Yeah. I knew that because I thought I was going to be a veterinarian. And I started studying my veterinary, the things I thought were, were important to being a veterinarian. I started studying those early, early, maybe at year 9 or te- 8, 9, 10, something like that in school. I was already looking at my father's textbooks and saying, this is where I'm going. Mm -hmm. And then I made the decision that I, two things, one, I didn't believe I was going to get into veterinary school, that it took more brains than I had. That was a personal belief. Uh, and, and I think it was very incorrect, Mm -hmm. but it was my perception at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was, and and uh, so I was also unhappy with having to deal with my father's clients. Right. That I, I didn't have any problem taking care of their cats and dogs, but, but some of these people were just. I'm sorry, I just didn't <laughs> want to talk to them, and uh, I didn't want to make a living talking to them. Fair enough. And uh, and so I said, you know, I. If if somebody would allow me just to do the surgery,
0: mm-hmm.
1: if I could just do veterinary surgery and leave it at that, I'd be happy. I extracted myself from the idea that I was one able to become a veterinarian, and two, maybe it's a justification, but I decided that I didn't want to be. Yeah. So 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 I when I embraced
0: architecture, I embraced it wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. I remember some of the stories from when I was young of you telling me about your past and, and how you got into art. Before we get into the art aspect, the architecture actually led you to some pretty interesting places in the world and also some major political stuff that was going on in the United States. Now, we don't have to get into that if you don't want, but can you tell me how did you end up traveling with this, with, with, with your architecture? Is there, I better, don't want that, no. is there a better no, way to avoid that? Is there a better way that I can ask it? Is there no, a better...
1: no, no, I think that's good. I think that's fine. I'm just trying to decide uh, how do I how do I approach that and how do I how do I say that? I had a we'll say a, a philosophical uh, disagreement with my uncle. Uh, that's my uncle Sam. Perhaps you know him. Um, he. Uh, we had a little disagreement about the ethics and morality involved in killing other people and uh, so I became and was registered as a conscientious objector and decided that there was a there was a saying that was popular at the time among those people who didn't understand. Um, America, love it or leave it. And that meant fall into line or piss off. They didn't, they wanted you out. And I said, you know what? Uh, I'm not even offended by that. I think you got a point there. And so I just bundled up and left for Europe. Right. Uh, And as soon as I hit Europe, I reverted instantly back into art mode. Right. Was that this
0: wasn't di- even a hesitation. Was this during the time you were at the University of Texas? It was at the end of university, yes. So you didn't and actually have a chance to finish I, your studies? Right? No, no, no. How far, how far into your studies did you get before you were called into Vietnam? Three years of a four-year course. Wow. Wow. So you hit Europe. Where's the, where's the first place that you get to? Well, I got to uh, the the, the first entry point was uh, um,
1: Reykjavik, Iceland. So I spent uh, two weeks in Reykjavik, Iceland, and I spent the entire time painting watercolors. Wow! I just did landscapes, watercolor landscapes. And I was highly influenced by Ted Kautsky's books, which I had brought with me in the luggage. I mean, when you're packing to go to Europe, what do you carry? Books. I (laughs) carried Ted Kautsky. And I was interested in Kautsky, had become aware of Kautsky, and, and started to follow Kautsky, because Kautsky allowed me to do architectural perspectives and renderings and so forth. And he improved the way my architecture looked, even though he was a landscape artist. And uh, I loved his style, and so I started to emulate his style. And that, and then he, I saw that he had a book on watercolor, so I got that book, studied that book, and um, so when I got to to Iceland, uh, I started doing and amassing a. a a body of work only over a two-week period, but it still amounted to dozens and dozens of watercolors.
0: Hmm.
1: And uh, so I was concerned about money, very concerned about money, and so I approached um, an art gallery to see if, They could sell or take some of my work or do something and they said no they they were filled up they didn't have any room and and they uh, you know just simply weren't would not buy anything outright that that was their policy Mm -hmm. and that me moving on you know not being staying in Iceland was was problematic well it should have been obvious Um, But the lady was nice, and she said she would like to see my folio, which I was holding under my arm. And so I handed her the folio. She opened it up, spread the paintings out on the desk, just stood there looking at it. Then she called someone out of the back room. That someone was the owner. She said, you've got to come in here and look at this. And so the other lady came in and looked at the artwork and said, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's Circe, and that's this place, and that's the other place, and I, oh, that's wonderful. And the, they said, well, what do you want for these? And I, I put a price on it. You know, it was something in the neighborhood of $10 a piece.
0: Good money back then.
1: And big money for me. Big money at that time. I mean, this is 1968.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, ten dollars a piece you know and I was starting with that and was willing to negotiate mm-hmm. and uh, she said uh, just a minute and they looked in their purses and they bought all of it Wow <laughs> they just bought the lot and
0: I was I was very pleased with that of course. Um, So they go from saying, they go from saying, Hey, we're we're not going to, we don't buy artwork outright. That's not our policy. Then you show them. And now suddenly they've changed their policy. And not only that, they reached in their own pockets and they bought it for themselves and for gifts.
1: They did not buy it to put in the, in the gallery.
0: Yes. That,
1: that they personally wanted. Well, I found that very gratifying and encouraging as you would, Hmm. uh, and so I had uh, maybe 250 or $300 or something like that. And, that. and that covered all the expenses while we were in Iceland and then some. Wow.
0: Fantastic. So, so, wow. so
1: that was great. So then we went on to the continent and we picked up a Volkswagen Combi at the factory in Westphalia, Germany and we proceeded to tour Europe, that is, your mother and I. Mm. We proceeded to tour Europe and visit all of the architectural monuments I had studied, (laughs) and all of the wild areas, and bird refuges, and national parks, and art museums, and whatever there was. And your mother was an artist at that time. And so we had overlapping interests, and uh, and Europe was just a smorgasbord of wonderful things to focus on. And so we started setting up and painting the monuments, the architectural monuments, and uh, it's easy because you you simply get a brochure about whatever the community has to offer, and they'll tell you which monuments they're very proud of. And when you go there, there will be touri- tourist buses full of American tourists who have been brought over to see the monument. And uh, so when they get to the monument, well, there's someone sitting on the wall just in front of the monument, painting the monument. And they get to see the artist at work, and they uh, get an opportunity to buy the painting that they see the artist doing.
0: Yeah, that's a good little business strategy right so, there. It, was, it, it worked very well. Mm. And uh, it was
1: funny, though. I found that uh, they were Amer- primarily American tourists, and that they were disappointed when they found out that I was an American. They would have much rather that I'd been Norwegian or Dutch or French or anything but just another damn yank. Mm. Uh, So I decided that the main thing to do was to keep my mouth shut. So they would come up and they would get out their their phrase book and then uh, try it in French or something. And I'd look at them like, what the hell are you all about? And uh, they'd say, uh, finally, they'd point to something and it would say, how much is this? And then I knew where it was because I'd been, I had the same phrase book and everybody did. And I'd flip through and I'd point to whatever price, I, you know, this is five bucks. Yeah. And I'd point to that. And they'd get out the money and I would put their wet envelope, their wet watercolor on an envelope for them to put in later. Mm-hmm. And they would grab their painting and run for the bus because the driver's already angry because they're not moving to the next yep. destination already, and that this person is waiting for their painting. Wow. And uh, so we just sold and both your mother and I sold and sold and sold on the street. Wow. And uh, so we were in, on the streets of Europe for three months,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and winter started coming on, and we had been to most of the countries, Sweden, Norway, didn't get ever get to Finland, but Sweden and Norway, and I thought we would be moving towards Sweden because that was sort of a um, destination for draft dodgers. And uh, but when I got to Sweden, they showed me what winter was going to look like, and I said, uh, you know, and this is us jumping naked into a hole in the ice in the lake, and I'm thinking, not, not this Texas boy, I will not survive this. And uh, I had a friend, an architect, whose wife was Norwegian. And she had made several years before an offhand comment over dinner that if she had any city in the world where she would like to live, it would be Zurich, Switzerland. And so as winter came on, we headed for Zurich. Why didn't I understand that that was going to be the coldest place you could possibly go? Wow, and that it wouldn't be long, and I would be under the ice in the lake of Zurich. Wow. And it was it, it it was just interesting. But I I I think that that you're when you're out on your own and you don't have any options, it forces you into a a mode into a position where you cannot afford to be timid. You have to, you're responsible for yourself. You have to step up and take advantage of an opportunity. So when we reached Zurich, we drove down the street. It was raining that evening, and we were driving, and it was late. It was just at dark, and there was a, we passed a sign on the side of the a main road in in the city and it said zoological museum and and I'm driving in the rain and I saw that sign and I just said tomorrow morning I'm going into the museum and get a job because wow. we're going to need money
0: yeah
1: well we we already had more money than we started with because we'd sold artwork
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it more than covered our cost of camping in the van and the fuel and the food we required so the next morning I did I went into the to the museum and got a job and well that doesn't sound reasonable why would you expect someone would just walk in and the first thing they ask for they get but I approached it very differently I was at the museum when it opened. I had my clipboard, which I am never without. you like
0: your clipboards? I know as you know
1: as I I'm know never yeah. without my clipboard yeah i when the museum opened, I not only was the first one in, hey, I was the only one in. <laughs> nobody wanted to go to the museum. It was middle of the week, and it was you know. But I got in there and I toured the museum and I wrote down everything that I thought could be improved. Wow. Okay. I just walked through and I said this could be improved, that could be improved, the other could be improved. What about this? What about the other? And then I I and this was almost at walking pace. I mean, I would walk, I would look, I would stop, I would make a note, I would move on. Mm-hmm. And I had about a hundred items on the list. Mm-hmm. Some general, some specific. Then I went downstairs to the uh, reception in uh, you know the, the the entry area. and I said uh, said who I was, as though that made any difference, and that I'd like to have uh, an appointment with the director and when could they do that? And the secretary called, spoke to him, and he said, uh, uh, he, he can talk to you in about 15 minutes if you just sit here. And in about 10 minutes, the director came down and said, invited me into his office. And I said, uh, I'm an artist, and uh, I've, I've looked over your museum, and here's what I think I can do for you, and here's a list, and here is uh, a portfolio of recent work That is, what I'd done over the last three months, which didn't sell, Mm -hmm. Um, and it it covered everything. I mean, it was everything. It was landscapes of the forest, it was paintings of mushrooms and flowers and birds and animals and trips to the zoo and trips to the art museum and architectural monuments and just, it was a wide range of stuff. And he looked at the the material, and he looked at the list, and he said, "When can you start?" And <laughs> uh, I said, "Now, right now, I'm here. We're ready to go." Right. And so they found me uh, an office in, uh, and uh, he set things for me to set tasks for me to do and insects, primarily insects, to draw and paint, and hey, off and running. Uh, within a week, your mother secured a position at um, the Dental in- dental Institute in the Surgery Department uh, as a medical illustrator. Based on the quality of her drawings, mm-hmm of human skulls from the Texas Memorial Museum at Austin Texas where we went to school and she had in her folio she had these skull drawings hmm. and the surgeon in charge there that hired her uh, looked at it and said you know how to draw teeth you know how to draw skulls i need you wow and so she was employed. I was employed,
0: and um, we went on from there. So you're working this job. You, you've you've landed on your feet now in Europe, and what, what I what I really want to know, because this is still what I'm unsure about from from being really familiar with your story growing up, is. That catalyst then, like you're, you're getting into the artwork now, you're producing it on your way through Europe, but you, you you still haven't made that plunge into full-time art and jumping all in. I want to know, what, what, what was that moment like for you? Can, do you remember the time and place where it, it was like, I have to do this and this alone? There's no job, there's no nothing else, it is, it is just about the art for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it was years later. It was years later. I mean, I, 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 I traveled extensively, being an architect mm. a slash artist, but jack of all trades. To, in in that sort of field, in the creative jack of all creative trades, mm. whatever was needed, I could provide, and I and I did quite a bit of traveling, and it was years later. Mm -hmm. when the decision, the opportunity came, when I became aware that that's what I was going to do. And can I remember it? I can remember it vividly like it was yesterday. I can tell you it was a Wednesday afternoon. Wow. It was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Your mother and I lived in um, Austin at that point. Austin, Texas, and uh, uh, I had gone. I had decided that I wanted to. We had been in Africa for several years, and I decided that I wanted to start a business to uh, sell safaris, both hunting safaris and photographic safaris and cultural safaris. Uh, to Ethiopia primarily, but other African countries, and I thought this would be a reasonable way to continue to be able to have uh, contact with Africa and make a living. Mm-hmm. And so I contacted uh, someone I had met in Ethiopia, and they invited me to a art show in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Mm-hmm. Now at the time I didn't realize it was an art show, It was actually a big game hunter's convention. Wow. And uh, so they were selling everything in there, hunts, safari clothing, travel, uh, camera equipment, uh, whatever. well, Anything you can imagine that that those people would be interested in, and all of it high-dollar stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, I wasn't there to look at wildlife art, Mm -hmm. but the person I was with, wanted to buy a piece of artwork. and so I w- accompanied them. I went with them, and so we looked at several pieces. and uh, finally i said uh, i I don't know I, i'm I, i'm I'm just concerned here I, I I, I know about animals, and uh, I don't understand this. This is we were looking particularly at bronze sculpture at that point. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about bronze. I mean, I've got a general idea about how it's done, but and I've done some jewelry casting and stuff like that. But I had, I, I'm not, you know, this is all new to me, and uh, I can tell you this that uh, I don't think these people know about animals. They don't have experience with that. I don't know this. The animals, anatomically, behaviorally, this doesn't read right to me. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't, you know, you, you do what you want, but there's something wrong here. I mean, let's look at this greater kudu. Its horns aren't built this way.
0: Mm-hmm. It,
1: the horns don't come out of its head this way. Right. You know, we need th- 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 so- something different. You know, what he- I think I could do that well. I wow. said that. Wow. Okay. And, and and so then I said, I don't know about this. And so then we went and we looked at some more pieces, and I said something like, You know, I think I'd be able to do this. Then we did looked at a few more pieces and and met some other artists, and these were the big name artists, the world wide known big name artists that right. were at this, Yeah. The big guys. And I said again. I think that I can do this and I think I want to do this. Right. And a person I was with turned to me and said, "Well, Tommy, if that's what you think, just do it." Wow. And I said, "You're right." I turned, we left there, said our goodbyes. I went to the telephone, this is back in the time of analog phones attached to the wall with paper phone books dangling on the end of a chain.
0: Yeah.
1: And I looked up art supplies and found that there was an art supply very close to the convention center uh, within walking distance. And I called them and said, I'd like to do bronze sculpture. Do you have the materials that are required and some instruction on how to do that? And they said, absolutely. And I said, great, I'm on my way. And I walked down there and I bought five pounds of modeling clay and a handful of tools and a book on how to do it, which should have been titled How Not to Do It. Uh, (laughs) I didn't know that. I did. It took me years to figure that out, uh, and I went home, and I then was faced with, well, what will I do? Yeah. yeah. And uh, and so I decided that I I liked elephants. I'd seen some elephants, and I thought I knew something about elephants, mm-hmm. and. I had something to say about elephants and I felt very emotional about elephants and uh, I'd do an elephant. I didn't know where to begin, so I started with my own experiences and I decided that I should draw uh, blueprints of an elephant and approach this the same way I would architecture. So I drew drawings of elephants, I I, I drew several drawings of elephants, but then when I finally settled on a pose. I did uh, front view, back view, side views, top view, bottom view, everything I could, details. I decided what that was gonna look like, and and so my planning and drawing skills already helped. I should say that before I left that show, I went to the office, to the reception for the convention, and I said uh, I'd like to uh, show my artwork in uh, in this convention. Uh, and I understand that you meet that this the next time will be 24 months from now. That it's every two years. And she said yes, uh, that'll be fine. And here's the information on it, and uh, and uh, gives you all the information about being a prospective artist. So they were prepared. Uh, to to consider somebody and she said but i'll tell you now that you would have to be uh, sponsored by a member as a prerequisite and that <clears throat> it would have to be your inclusion in the art show would have to be approved by the board they would look at your artwork and decided decide whether they wanted you in their art show or not Mm-hmm. And I said, fine, that's understandable. And then she said, that's great. What kind of artwork do you do? And I said, I do bronze sculpture. <laughs> have not done it said, yet. <laughs> how, how long have you been doing it? And I said, I haven't started. Oh, wow. And she said, well, I will tell you right now, this is the highest pinnacle you can reach in wildlife art. And there is... No, I'm, I do not mean to be discouraging, but there is absolutely no possibility that you will be in this art show in two years. And I said, "Thank you. I will see you in two years." Oh my God, Dad! <laughs> I, and now that's pretty—that's pretty gutsy and pretty bold. That's a pretty and, bold and an statement, ballsy, isn't it? And furthermore, the, it seems that this is uh, imprudent and I wouldn't recommend it for anyone else. And I actually, it sounds like I was uh, uh, under the influence of something. Either I'd been drinking or stoned out of my gourd on God knows what. Uh, <clears throat> doesn't seem reasonable, rational, logical. None of that is, is good behavior or anything that you would think would be reasonable. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. The truth of the matter was is that I had been hijacked. By what? And I didn't realize it at the time. Yeah. My brain had been hijacked by a small plasmodium. A plasmodium is a, a, a little animal larger than a bacteria, uh, that lives in your blood, and this one happened to be quinine resistant malaria. And malaria had taken over my brain and was having a little party in there eating my brain for me, thank you very much. Actually not eating the brain, but eating the blood cells in my brain that my brain needed to function. Right. So, as a matter of fact, I was stoned out of my gourd, but it was the malaria talking Wow, well, so within I did get my my stuff for my elephant, but before I could start
0: my elephant, I needed to have a week in the hospital Wow, okay so is this is is your bout with malaria kind of lulling you into this false sense of? You know that this this almost self-aggrandizing, overconfident approach. You know, is is that is that what was happening there when you look at this this person sitting at the desk and she's telling you no way, and you're like, yes way, it's happening. See you in two years.
1: Yeah. Well, I this is very much. I don't see that there's any difference between uh between what happened to me and being drunk. Right. They're both oxygen deprivation to the brain yeah right and uh so okay so i was drunk that that's the way it was and so i i got over my malaria it was rugged it yeah. was a bad time in the hospital and uh, and it the whole thing was rough i mean i was delirious mm-hmm uh, you know, had to go. They had to be taken to the hospital by ambulance. Wow! I mean, I just came unglued. Yeah. And uh, and it was it was really bad. Hmm. But when I came around, there was my lump of modeling clay and my elephant pl- plans. My my dream to do an elephant.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And somehow, while my brain. Was in a severely deranged state. Mm-hmm. I had focused on a new star in the sky on which to chart my course. And having changed my ship bearings, I was off in a new direction, and there was no turning back, right. no varying the course. I knew where I had where I had to go Mm -hmm. I knew what I had to do to get there Mm
0: -hmm. and I was determined to make that happen so over over the course of the next few years as you're building up your work because I, I do, I do want to finally address the rhino in the room and the billy goat and the turkeys and the jackrabbit and the gorilla. Uh, for people listening to the audio version of this podcast, you can also find the video version of this podcast on YouTube. And you will see in the background behind my father all of these fantastic sculptures which he's started in recent years. So this this period of time when you, when you just are getting into your your, your art, and you're starting to build up this body of work. What happens then? How did you end up turning this into the into a business? Because I remember, just to kind of cut ahead a little bit here, mm-hmm. I, I benefited from a lot of the success that you had in terms of the lessons that you were able to give to me. And I remember you you actually went into it, being relatively successful from the outset, when you hear about the trajectory of many other people's art career, you actually had a pretty meteoric rise to success pretty early on, where you were able to sustain your creative production. So can you walk us through that, what that process was like for you, and how you managed it? Well,
1: there, there was a learning curve in the beginning. The, my first few pieces were uh, naive, compared to later pieces. And you would expect that. It would. I, I certainly would think that anyone who practices something will improve.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so that was no different with me. It did improve, but I did start off at a pretty high level. So, the, remember my objective wasn't to be, I didn't have a goal at, to be the best in the world. I didn't have a goal to be uh, anything other than I thought that I could beat the other competition that I saw. So that's where I that that was my objective was if I'm going to if I'm going to uh, compete successfully in this market, I have to do at least that well, and I was able to do that well from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And so I was very lucky. But hey, I had an entire childhood behind me of drawing and sculpting and painting. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of experience, uh, which I gained from architecture school. I had a lot of experience, which I gained from the work that I had, architectural Mm -hmm. and otherwise, after that point. And I certainly, because I had spent five years in Africa working in the national park system as an architect,
0: I had enormous uh, backlog of experience with animals. Yeah. And it's animals that is your main subject. I mean, that's primarily what you do, with the exception of a couple of figures that I've seen you do. It's mainly wildlife, isn't it?
1: Right. And I only consider my fig- that humans are just another species of animal. Right. So I don't see that as any different. We sure. have the same bones, the same Latin names on the anatomy. It's no different. Humans are no different to me than the animals. I mean, it's not like there are animals and then there are people. It's there are animals and we are one of them. Mm. Uh, okay. that's, fine.
0: that's fine. I don't have any, any problem with that. And I easily reach over and get into people. So I've seen all of this new work behind you and it's been, it's actually been a few years since I've been into your studio, but you have some of that early stuff there from this period of time. Well, I have, I, I don't have a good collection
1: personally of my own work. That was never important to me, but I do have a a few of the early pieces and I can show you one piece in particular. Let me just step over there to do that. Sure. And I'll pick it up off the shelf.
0: And this is obviously going to be in the video version if you're listening to this podcast. All right, so you're back. This, you got all it. All right, I'm back. Good.
1: So my this piece is a little on the dusty side and unloved, but it gives you an example of one of the early pieces and the quality that I was able to produce for that particular market. Right. And so this was this is a very a very early bronze, and it's about three and a half inches tall and about five inches in length. That's and,
0: fantastic, man!
1: And yeah. it it appealed to the people that I was marketing to, yeah. and it it uh, compete was able to compete for quality and price.
0: Very nicely, with the rest of the market. And wait, wait a second. I, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna stop you right there, Dad, because uh, you're you're throwing out a few words, and you're you're talking in a way that indicates to me, <clears throat> and I'm becoming a little more aware of this now that we're we're talking about this. It indicates to me that you're starting off now with your architecture uh, with your art beg your pardon, you're starting off with all of this benefit of your childhood, architecture, all of this, and now you're coming into it with an actual understanding of competing in the marketplace and talking about this as if it's a business. So that's something I do want to get into because how would you you even know or, or go about creating work that would fit into this in order to be able to compete favorably and be successful? Like, how well, did you I, even know to make that move? Uh, it, it was obvious.
1: First, it was blind luck. Right. Okay, so I was not interested in business per se. Okay. I was aware of business because architects have to be aware of business to be able to design buildings that will support their clients' needs. Mm-hmm. So if you're building a fill-in-the-blank, a book bank bindery or a car factory or whatever it happens to be, you need to understand the, the, the terminology and the function of business at different levels, all aspects of it. And you need to do something where your architecture is going to support your client's needs. Otherwise, you're not helping at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, was, I did have some awareness. What all I really wanted to do was to sculpt animals. And I insisted that they, they had to be as good as I could do. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if my animals were better... The people that were the potential buyers in this big-game hunting fraternity would be more likely to buy my work than they would if my work wasn't good. And I also realized that price was probably a factor. And so I needed to, to to offer the highest quality that I could provide at the lowest price that I could manage and still make a living so that's a
0: pretty simple concept yeah well, i mean it's a simple concept yeah amazingly effective yes yeah, not it's not terribly sophisticated i mean it's
1: just it, it it seems to be sort of an obvious sort of thing
0: it's well it might not it might not be sophisticated or have the sexiness of, of a, like this really grand complicated mm-hmm. business plan or anything but you you stumbled onto something that worked and as soon as you had that magic formula, it just seems that you carried the thing. Mm-hmm. You kept doing and doing and doing. So give us a snapshot about where you are today. Let's let's jump right ahead now. Because now, let, I, let me well, just... Now, let, 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 let's not. Let me just insert into the middle of that what <laughs> okay. happened
1: in between. Okay. I started, off, I started off with an excellent business model. Yeah. And then I looked around and thought, this is so easy. This will apply to other areas as well. Sure. And I wasted years following
0: wild geese around in the darkness. Are you referring to the the Perth Zoo days? No, not at all. Not at all. No, I'm referring to other art
1: markets and ways of other business models and other markets which I approached and could not make work. Give me an example of what you you couldn't make work. All right, for example, I decided that it took, and this was just from a personal observation, Uh, I decided that it took uh, three things to to close an an art sale, that uh, the person had to have enough money to buy it. They had to be wealthy enough to buy a piece of artwork, and art, in general, is a luxury item. They had to have an interest in the subject material. It had to be something that they liked, that they were interested in, that they felt personally about. And then they had to have the feeling that they wanted to or should collect art. And if you didn't have, they had, they they had, they felt there was some intrinsic, you could be very interested in the subject, but if you didn't think art was had intrinsic value, you weren't going to sell to this person. They were not going to buy it if they didn't feel that way. So I had to have those three. So I looked around. And I found that there were other areas where I thought the the key element here was money, the first one. They had to be able to afford it. So being in Texas, I looked at the horse market. A lot of show horses, a lot of different breeds, a lot of different functions. Horses might be great. Another one was very parallel to that. There was a lot of, obviously, a lot of the people that were cattle breeders, not meat producers, but cattle breeders, they had big ranches, they had lots of money, and they had particular breeds of cattle. So I started, I spent, I basically wasted about 18 months to two years trying to do horses and cattle for my Texas Uh, clients who also were interested in hunting locally. In the meantime, the international hunting market, the safari market, if you will, continued to buy my work. So that was bread and butter, but I became distracted by thinking I should work this thing closer to home. Now, what I didn't understand at that point was that As an artist, I'm not a manufacturer. I'm not big business. My objective is now and should have been then. Don't get greedy with it. Decide what you need. Your objective should be to be able to afford to continue to do your artwork. How do I take care of my family? And continue to be an artist that's right that should be the limit of it Mm. don't go beyond that don't think this is a get-rich-quick scheme it's not
0: well I, Mm. I think I think if you have the thing that I'm learning the older I get is if you have that creative fulfillment from a sustained creative production then that's more valuable than anything monetary anyway that's yes. far more valuable. Because yes. when I think about it it, it, it doesn't matter how much money comes in or how well I'm doing financially to, to a point within reason. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah, having, you still have to make a living. Having more, you, you have to make a living, sure. But mm-hmm. getting then more and more and more and going for the next cell and the next, and the next mm-hmm. big kill and keep going, keep going, keep going. There's a certain point where you realize, well, I, all I want to do is paint anyway. Or in your case, sculpt, that's all I want to do. So if I'm doing that, I'm I'm happy. I'm good. I'm happy. So I I, I totally appreciate that. And I, I can actually see from, from you know just listening to you again now where I got a lot of this stuff from. Right. Well, let me tell you
1: another big mistake I made. Because we learn from others' mistakes, or we should. You don't want to have to you don't want to have to make all these mistakes yourself. You should watch other people step in it and say, I'm not going there. Um, uh, I, I did an awful lot of one man shows, one or two a month, one or two a month for a what? long time.
0: I didn't I realize it you. was
1: that frequent. Oh God. Yeah. It was what it, Hey, you have to sell. Now I was out there, I was making sales, but my objective, I, what I told myself and that is pretty much the truth. It's not the individual sale is not my objective. I'm happy to make an individual sale. I'm looking for patrons. I'm looking for collectors. I'm looking for somebody who's going to buy one of almost everything I do. That's where, because you go to art shows and you spend an an inordinate amount of time talking to people A lot of them, the vast majority of them, will be tire kickers. They're wasting your time. I was doing shows, some of them one-man shows, some of them connected to the hunting fraternity. They were all over the United States. I got a a Suburban, and I drug a four-horse trailer, horse trailer and I drug it coast to coast, and did the show circuit. And I sold a lot, but I realized somewhere out driving across the desert in Nevada or somewhere, that this wasn't what I wanted to do. I did not want to be a truck driver.
0: Wow, yeah.
1: That this, this is, yes, you can make money doing this, but at what cost? This living on the road, I'm neglecting my family. <clears throat> when I say I'm neglecting, I'm not there to take care of you, you know. And and uh, I'm not I'm not I'm I'm absent for too long a period of time, and I'm exhausted by having to drive to the location, set the show up, work the booth, and then box it all up again load it back in the trailer and drive to the next destination and and I'm it's rough when you have one show in Atlanta and the next one is in San Diego you're driving across the continent and when I drove across there there were others not artists necessarily but other commercial members working the same show and we stayed at the same motels and we passed each other on the highway and waved and honked and we knew each other. It's like gypsies in a caravan moving cross country. It's a, it's a very strange lifestyle. It's a lifestyle I chose to try to move away from.
0: Right, right.
1: So I needed something different
0: a gallery. <clears throat>
1: Not a gallery. <laughs> well, I had already, I had already tried the gallery path. That was another mistake I went down. I thought, well, okay, galleries will this that. Galleries know all the people with money, and the people with money come to the galleries, and uh, they spend their money at the galleries, and um, <clears throat> and for that, for them finding a buyer for you, uh, they're going to take a percentage and so it's obvious that uh, you have to build some of that percentage into the price and uh, you don't have the contact with the buyer that you would if you made the sale directly but so it has good and bad points and all you have to do is have enough galleries and uh, to make the numbers come out you just have to make it up in volume so i found selected a group of galleries spread out across the mostly the southern part of the united states and i had extremely painful experiences trying that model and right. In in a nutshell, uh, I, d- I don't have I don't have a lot of good things to say. I don't have anything good things to say about them. Uh, I'm sorry, but I mean I'm just
0: I'm still angry and bitter about the experiences that 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 I had with them. Um, That's it's it, really it's really interesting to hear you say that because, and I do want to get more into the business side of things, because looking at you and your business model, you've made this work independent of galleries, but also independent of the online realm. As for me, that that,
1: that
0: online realm
1: wasn't, wasn't even a thing, not a possibility. It it wasn't even a thought. It didn't
0: exist. Yeah. It wasn't even a thought, but, but you, you had this, so you had to make it work on your own. Um, you know, for me, it's, I, I think it's relatively easier because I'm able to to communicate with clients a little bit more readily. And, and we now have, live in a global community. Everybody's connected. So I, I say to my students now and people that, that listen, um, there's never been a better time to be an artist. But there you are in the 70s and 80s. The best you can do is pick up the phone. You can't send an email. You could send them a letter by snail mail. I did. I or, did. Well, I so, sent, I. I would. I had a newsletter which I
1: went down to the. I either ran it off uh, at the copy shop on the, or I had somebody print up uh, two hundred letters and I hand addressed them, hand hand addressed the envelopes and licked the stamp personally and sent and wrote, usually wrote a personal note at the bottom or on the top of each one to the individual I was sending it to. It was the personal contact. Mm-hmm. And therein lies another important factor. The, your clients are as interested in their personal relationship with you as they are interested in your artwork. They want to be able to say they knew the art they know the artist they want to be able to tell their friends they pick up something off their desk or off their mantelpiece and say this piece was done by my good friend
0: do you think the gallery model would have worked can work if they if if that one policy was was enacted where the client and the the artist could meet
1: no, no, no. I don't. I think that there's more wrong with it than that. I think that it's a flawed, a flawed business model from the beginning. I think it is based on what I call the lemonade stand model, and that is you set up a card table and a folding chair out on the edge of the street, and you get uh, uh, two lemons and a half a cup of sugar, and a pitcher of ice water, and you put up a little sign that says lemonade five cents. And then somebody wanders by and decides to buy a glass of lemonade from you for five cents. That is the gallery model. Mm -hmm. They think that they get people to come into their gallery by having an exhibition or show, and so they have uh, some gala night where they invite one or more artists to display their, their work, and they provide wine and cheese, and people come out of the woodwork, the tire kickers come out in force to eat the wine and cheese and hobnob and think that they're doing something cultural, and you make enough sales to cover the cost of the wine and cheese. Right. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is not the way to do it. Now, if, a, if an art dealer has a, see now, this statement will date me again, it has a Rolodex. A Rolodex is a telephone number file that is, that is a complete circle, and, and so you can flip through the file and pick out someone's number. If they have, if they have a list of buyers which they represent, and they don't even have to have your artwork present. They just need a picture of it. In today's world, this is really easy. Mm-hmm. They can contact their buyers mm-hmm. and say, I have an opportunity for you today only. If you'll get back in touch with me now, you can buy this painting. Yes. If not, I have to offer it to someone else. Yeah. But you're next on the list. Do you want it? Yes or no? and they sell everything basically before you could even go to the store and buy the wine and cheese, mm-hmm. that's a different model. I only know a few art dealers in the entire world that operate that way. Well, they're mm-hmm. probably worth working with.
0: I, 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 I'm, mm-hmm. I'm only going gonna, gonna, to... Sorry, I, you know, I like to argue with you, Dad. Um, I, I do remember um, there's, there's one art dealer who... I managed to have a fantastic relationship with for over 12 years. And um, him and his wife running that gallery down in Applecross, you'll remember, Applecross Fine Art, Colin and I remember Gay. Remember it, well. and I remember it well. I remember it well. You'll recall from that, you know, Colin and Gay were the only people that would actually have a client in the gallery ready to buy a work and then call me up to come in and meet them. You know, and we worked it out in such a way well, they, where we had an amazing working relationship that lasted for years. And But it was also, okay, so it might have been a limit, limiting factor that it was in a physical location and could not move around. So, yeah, I can, I can take the point <clears throat> about being a limited, lemonade stand of sorts. However, the, the, the market and the climate uh, you know, at the time in Perth for, for buying art, it was a really good time as well. So there were a lot of things going for it. But I think what it came down to at the end of the day is we had a winning combination of, you know, I was I was young. I was producing some some nice big paintings, but I had the right agent. I I think so. I think that if you're not, you know, if you're not
1: going to use the gallery model, you then must have a different business model, which you will use. Yeah. So, okay, if that's not it, what model will you use? Hmm. You know, that's the next question. So there sure. are problems, for, as far as I'm concerned, uh, there are problems, insurmountable problems, with the gallery business model. And the primary one is that it's a single location, and I need to sell more bronze than that. I need to sell to a, to a larger market. So, so I set about trying to locate optional other
0: alternative markets that, were, that had a different profile. So, so quarter horses and prize bulls didn't work. Driving this horse trailer all across the United States didn't work. You hit the wall with that. What was the thing that actually ended up sticking? Well, I tried two simultaneously. I tried museums,
1: particularly zoological, natural history museums as a possible clientele, and I worked that very hard, put a lot of money into developing that market, and then I worked uh, zoos, and I put An equal amount, maybe even more money into working into developing the zoo market. But I have to say, what you do, you try different things, and if something is successful, you do more of that. So, zoos were more successful. So, I eventually dropped attempting to sell to museums at all because it was more trouble than it was worth because zoos had picked up the slag, and now it's been it's been mm, 25 or 30 years exclusively zoos.
0: So give me I remember you telling me but give me some sort of idea now as to how many bronzes or how many different zoos have your work as of twenty nineteen, I would
1: say that there are probably two hundred and fifty life-sized animals out there in
0: about um, one
1: hundred and fifty zoos.
0: Wow! And so, once a zoo buys, I mean, I know they, they actually end up buying more than one life-sized bronze. Some
1: yeah. some do. Some yeah. do. Depends on whether they can afford it and whether they appreciate the value of the bronze to their institution. Uh, A lot of that is the insight of the director. Does the director think that this improves his facility?
0: Talk to me about how this now works as a business then. How do you even approach this? It seems like the most complicated thing. It's like, oh yeah, I'll just get my bronze in a zoo. Can you walk me through the steps as to how that actually ends up eventuating? Well, you know, you do not do that by visiting the zoo,
1: by going to the zoo. You do because you have got, you don't, you don't, if you go to the river fishing, you do not pick out a single fish and try to dangle the hook in front of it. You you go and you throw your hook in the water where lots of fish are, and the fish decides which one is going to bite it. It's not your decision. It's beyond our control. Right, right, yeah. Uh, now sometimes you can you you know you can make that work, and sometimes if it doesn't work, just pick up a rock and bash the fish with it, and that's one way to achieve it. But realistically, we we just have no control over when somebody wants to do it, and a lot of a lot of potential clients want the piece, but it takes time. Particularly because zoos and museums are institutions; it takes time for them to uh, get the money together. This is this is expensive stuff. We're talking about. Tens of thousands of dollars for each one of these things, and uh, you. So, so it's not they don't have the discretionary funds to just say fine, or very rarely some of them do. Uh, oh, I like that, I'll have it. They're not. They don't operate as individuals. They operate. They've got to go back and find the money. Now, their budgets are designated for things like feeding their animals. Mm -hmm. So Fair enough. And you certainly want to make sure you take care of your animals first, that's the priority. So there's no budget left over for that. So I have found that zoos don't actually buy bronze. Now wait a minute, my entire market is zoos. The zoo doesn't buy the bronze. Someone in the community decides to buy the bronze for their zoo. Now, I didn't see that one coming. I should have. Should have been obvious, but I didn't see it. But when I did see
0: it, I recognized it and I took advantage of it. So now we're getting into a realm where this is artwork done through philanthropy. Exactly.
1: That, and that's just what I have I have gravitated towards, and I have gravitated towards it because it is the easiest way for me to make
0: a very reasonable living. So let's say you're you're fishing for zoos here. I, I can't imagine you're taking your your handwritten, envelopes, your newsletters, you know, licking the envelope, stamping it and, start, and sending it out there to a bunch of zoos. You know, how, what form is this taking? How do you approach the zoo? And is it based first on, mm-hmm. hey, I want to sculpt a rhino or I want a gorilla or how, how does that, how does that work? Well, it can work one of
1: several ways. I mean, there is some flexibility in it. And, it, sure. and so for me, it, it works many different ways. First, I approach the market I approach it as a market, as an entity, not as individual zoos. Now, the zoo market happens to be comprised of about 500 uh, registered, they call it, accredited zoos in the United States. About 500 of them. And a bunch of smaller facilities that are not accredited. So, the big ones about 5. So that's a very small market to work. You got 500 clients. Mm-hmm. All right. So can the so to approach that, I cannot afford to travel to 500 different American cities to visit their zoos and when you get there, they're director's not available, they don't have time to talk to you, they're not thinking about this, and so forth. So, I found that every year the zoo association, that professional organization to which all zoo professionals uh, belong, are members, They have an annual convention. So I do one man art shows. That's what I do. So, knowing that I'm not going to sell anything right off the bat at the show, I would go to the convention, <clears throat> buy a double or triple booth because my work's big. I'm not gonna get it in a <clears throat> 10 by 12 foot space. I set up the best looking art show I possibly can, and I put out my bronzes, and I start shaking hands and introducing myself and talking to people. And I did that, <clears throat> uh, I did that for years and years many years. So out of about 30, from 30 years of doing that, I went to the conventions for 20 years. And I shook hands and talked to and met, not just directors, but anybody that wanted to talk to me or talk about artwork or whatever. And my name got out there. They knew me. As an individual, I was every year they'd have an opportunity to see me. And in business terms, being able to see someone face to face once a year is a lot. Now, for me, that was exhausting. Hmm. That means I'd go and I'd be talking to 2,500 people. Wow. And trying to remember them.
0: <laughs> That's a tall uh, order.
1: <clears throat> a tall order. Difficult. Hard on you. Keep, you have to keep J. Egg or Hoover files on these people, and maybe even get snapshots and things, so that you can, inter- you can speak to them on a first name basis when you see them a year later. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you you have to be, you have to be intent on 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 talk on developing your personal relationship with your clients, and I think that that is important no matter what business model you
0: use. Can I just insert right there, just a little, because I appreciate that so much. I remember you telling me that from a, <laughs> from an early age. I went. I was on an artist in residency recently, so it had been several years since I had actually been on mm. this vessel. And I'm there. I'm set up to do my show. I'm getting ready to do classes, and in walks this familiar face, and it's been years since I've seen him and I just reached out my hand. I said, hello, mister, I won't reveal his name, but uh, I said, it's a pleasure to see you again. And he wasn't a celebrity or anybody famous or anything, he's just one of these wealthy people that lived on the ship. As the artist in residency finished up and I was leaving, packing down my show, he made a point of coming by the show with his wife again to shake my hand and he said, I'm gonna tell you something, young man, I, I am so impressed with you, and I'll be like, "Oh, okay, thank, thank you. Why? What, what's what's up?" I, I I was thinking he was making a comment about my art. Mm-hmm. He said, "You remembered my name." I said, "Of course, of course," but I, I I didn't realize the effect that that would have on him personally, and how special that made him feel to just have somebody you know remember his name, because it had been so long there was no reason he never bought anything it wasn't anything like that i there was no there was no particular reason to recall that but i because i i was able to do it in the moment i wasn't fumbling for his name it meant something to him it was validating Mm to him Mm -hmm. and since that you know he um it it just felt a little more personal absolutely and it's
1: it's exactly that the What you did by remembering his name is you made a statement to him, you are important to me. That's a very personal thing to say to someone. You're important enough to me that I remember your name after a year. And I remember the names of my clients, even from back in the big game hunting days when when I was working that particular market many of those people have already passed away um, the vast majority of that group have mm-hmm. but I remember them like it was yesterday if I saw if I went if I was able to transport myself back to one of those conventions I could walk in and start shaking hands and greeting people on a first name basis and pick up a conversation that I had from so, how is that done? Hmm. You, you remember the names because you care. You care about this person, mm-hmm. it, and you know that it's important to remember them, and you think about them again after you the experience is over, and after you leave, and you're at your easel, and you are your mind is going back over things, mm-hmm. And you remember, oh, I remember so and so when he came in and he asked me this. And of course my mind works that way. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, you have a easy for you to say you have a photographic memory. Well, I'm not sure what that means. Yeah. No. But I certainly consciously try to to remember people's names and faces. And uh, I I think that that if you're ha- saying well I don't have a memory for names and faces that you haven't trained your memory you need to train your mind your memory and the best thing to do with remembering these people's your clients names and that is to to register it it's not that we don't it's not that we don't remember the name we never heard the name properly to begin with. So you repeat it. Repeat the name. When they introduce themselves, repeat the name. Make a note of it. I'll tell you which names I really remember. It's sometimes difficult just to remember somebody who comes up and kicks some tires and gives you a ration of crap about your artwork. But the ones I remember the names on, I remember names on checks. Okay. Somebody hands me a check, I remember their name, believe me. OK, that's that that check amounts to a lot of rent in groceries. That's what it means to you.
0: Well, it, well, hang on a second. So so that mm-hmm. therein, you know, when you're making a sale and, and you've got money from your client, this is what I feel. And I've said this in the past in podcasts where it's it's a sense of of overwhelming gratitude because by paying you money, they enable you to do that thing, which matters to you most. It's, it's this really beautiful transaction. They are, they're validating you in such a way that, Hey, I think you're doing a wonderful job. Please keep going. I love this work so much. I'm going to live with it. And of course you attach now that name and that person with this emotional trigger. Um, uh, uh, and and that drives it even further into your memory. Yeah, I like that. That's exactly right. You know, you you strike me as a sort of guy. You were aware of building a personal brand in the age before Instagram. Because now that's what it's all about. You, you hear people like uh, Gary Vaynerchuk or Gary Vee talking about this all over his Instagram, about building your personal brand. And there's a book that I really like that I've listened to on Audible recently called Crushing It. By Gary Vaynerchuk. And what I realized when I was listening to this book is going, well, this echoes so much of what I was brought up with about building the personal brand. It, now it's easier for us to do this with the use of social media. But you you, you did this in a real tangible, old school way. Um, and, and now you're, even though now you're living in the age of Instagram, you know the internet, websites, Facebook, email lists, all of this, you're still physically interfacing with people. What is it that you think the old school can provide to the new school? Well, wow. I'm I'm simply not.
1: I simply don't have the understanding of the new school to be able to address that properly. Well, let me I can let tell me tell you what the old school looked like. Well, let, let me just. Uh, let but me I mean, just, I'm
0: watching you, and I don't understand. Well, here's the thing. Let let me <laughs> let me let me rephrase this in a way because I love the way that Tony Robbins put this. In the age of information, we're we're drowning in information, but we're starving for wisdom. So we have all of the gadgets. We have all of the whiz bang ways of interfacing with our clients, of dealing with 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 people in a direct way even though it's through cyberspace, but still people are finding it a struggle to make the transition into deriving an income from their creative passion. And to me, I feel like the mm-hmm. answer is not necessarily, this is just personally, I feel like the answer doesn't necessarily you know, exist with beefing up your Instagram account or getting more followers on Facebook or, or improving your website, that sometimes it can come down to, just looking at the, the physical requirements of the, of the artwork itself, maybe improving your work. So to me, I'd look at that as an old school way of, of you know, it, it all comes down to, the, to, to what you can physically do within your art business, not necessarily just relying on these technological crutches. Yeah, well, I wouldn't know how to rely on them.
1: Right. I mean, I just, I don't do any of it. Yeah. I, uh, other than I have, I have a very out of date website and I have an email address mm-hmm. on which, which people can reach me. Uh, and they do. Well, wow. they write, they write to me an email and inquire about whatever they wish to inquire about. And that's the sum, that's the totality of it. Uh, I, it they, they know generally that my website is 10 years out of date, dreadfully in need of an, a rebuild. Not just update it, but rebuild. Because this, this my website was built in HTML. Okay. And, and you can't change it. It's just not, it's not user-friendly at all. Right. It's set in stone, and I don't I don't know if anybody even uses that or can speak that language anymore. I, so,
0: I, I think that I think they can. I mean, our, our website's an huh. HTML WordPress website, and it can be updated with plugins well, and all that stuff. So, well, but I mean, but I, I hear well, what you're, maybe, you're saying. You know, but yeah. it,
1: this was way before there was any anything that any systems that you could plug things in and change them that sure, wasn't available sure. when my website first went up. Right. Right but so my my website does need upgrade desperately mm. and uh, but I'm not terrible it you know things are working so well with it I can't handle any more work than I've already
0: got and isn't isn't that the definition of success right there of, of being exactly. in, in in a position where you won't see the end to that waiting list
1: well well I know that this sounds weird and, and even braggardly but r- right now i'm i'm having a break i ha- i have absolutely uh, suffered burnout and i'm having just a little downtime a little break from the business because i'm coming off of 8 months of 80 and 100 hour work weeks and that's not sustainable for anybody much less somebody who's supposed to be retired And I just have been so covered up with it, so busy,
0: Hmm.
1: and and I'm exhausted. I'm physically and
0: mentally exhausted from it. Talk to me about this process then, because you... I remember, again, from from growing up, you you told me when I was a kid, um, Andrew, I only have time in my life for two things, my art and my family. You stay true to your word. I remember you cut everything else out. So for somebody who's living and breathing their artistic passion, how do you get burned out? If this is is everything, too, yeah, how does that even happen? Uh,
1: You get burned out. Uh, First, art isn't all creative. Okay. Okay, Uh, there are creative aspects of it that are very personally satisfying, very fulfilling. But there's always parts of your business that are just plain work. And so consequently, you know, I can be very involved and wound up about producing a new piece of work. And I love that. And I never get tired of that. But then, after I've done it, I have to build the mold. And that's just hard work. Or you could pay somebody yeah. to build the mold, yeah. but if you're as picky as I am, you know they won't do as good a job as you would,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they're going to charge you a lot of money for it, and you can't ship your original safely to them they're certainly not going to come to you. I mean, I I live about as remote as you can get in in far north Queensland. I mean, I'm out I'm out literally in the rainforest
0: in Australia, nope. the very the top, top northeast yeah. corner of Australia. That's right. That's right.
1: I'm as far away from
0: the world as I can get. Right. And it's quiet here. I think I I win. I, I think I'm further away from the world. I don't know. I don't. Know. Actually, maybe we have uh, more people in this town than we have than you have in your town. How many people are in your town? Uh,
1: oh, I think there's 70.
0: Okay, you win. Oh, we got 480 here. <laughs> well. It's tiny. Yeah. I and mean,
1: we got we got we got two streets. And mm. and and we, you know, it's it's a tiny country community. Yeah. And the and the properties here are larger.
0: Yeah. So, sorry, I, but, I, I I
1: got you off track there. Yeah, I'm, I'm well off track now. I don't know if I'll ever find my way back. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I was going to say something. Burnout. Burn burnout. Yes, burnout. I definitely am burnout. How do you burn out when you enjoy what you're doing? So much of what I was doing, I, I did my originals. There's no burnout in that. Then I had to build the molds. Pull, pull the master copies out of those molds, pack the molds up, send them to the foundries, uh, have them cast. Then you can't send stuff out of the foundry the way the foundry gives it to you. Mm-hmm. So you have to go personally to put your personal touch and ensure that it's exactly the way you want it. And that's just hard work. Wow. Wow. And, and so a, a lot of it, more than half of it, is not the creative end of it. And building molds is a, is a nasty, dirty process. You're working with liquid rubber and fiberglass resin and urethane castings and stuff, you know, and you just, it's all, it's heavy work. And it certainly doesn't occur in this studio. I mean, I have a
0: uh, a big garage out there to to work in let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the process then uh, just can you take us from the beginning you you you're going to do a life-size rhino let's say let's say the rhino that's behind you in your studio the rhino right. and, the, and the calf and mm-hmm. And how does that start? So we've talked about the process of, of, you know, you get the order from the zoo and you have the buyer for the piece and now you're starting the process. So can you walk us through the nuts and bolts of creating this work of art? Right. Well,
1: first, you have to have a vision of what you're going to, what you want to achieve. You have to have a concept and you go through a, a process of concept development, design development, where you try to analyze it and make uh, decisions about what could be done that would improve the piece. And you do that, and you do that in repeating cycles. You do it, you correct it, you analyze it again, you make those corrections, you analyze it again. It's very much like editing the manuscript of a book, goes back to the editors, except in this case, you are the writer, the author, and the editor. And it means you are responsible for the way the the piece is released. don't, Don't pass the buck to anybody else. Just because you don't like doing editing, you can't get out of it. You have got to edit it and improve it and make it as good as you can. All right, so then I start off small and I model it and I do a small scale figure. So here is a a model of this rhinoceros, and you see that it's about five inches long and about two and a half inches tall, but it's fairly detailed. Now, this is a bronze casting of that piece. From this piece, I needed to refine it and add more detail to it. So I did the piece, again, just a bit larger. So there it is, larger. That piece is about uh, of one foot or 300 millimeters tall and about two feet or 600 millimeters in length. So now that's getting me up into the point that that's about one-fifth scale for the life-size piece. Now, at that point, you have an option of which road you're going to go down. The conventional road, the one I have always taken, is that I then begin to build that at the full scale, the full size that I'm going to produce the life-size bronze and I've done that for 40 years. Just get straight into it and blow it up and carefully measure it and enlarge the piece and put all the detail into it I want. Then I build the mold. The mold consists of a rubber jacket that goes over the clay original and a support case a rigid support case and other people use plaster i use fiberglass boat hull specifications <clears throat> that supports the rubber and keeps the rubber from distorting in that mold you would cast you would cast a wax duplicate and that wax duplicate goes through the lost wax process that is plumbing is attached to it And then the entire piece, the the wax and the plumbing is covered with a fireproof material that goes into the furnace. In the heat of the furnace, the wax burns out, burns away, vaporizes, and leaves a cavity. The foundry then takes bronze, melts the bronze, pours the bronze into the cavity, which the wax had originally occupied, and when that cools, they break the fireproof shell off the outside, revealing the bronze duplicate of your wax, or of your clay original several steps before. That's not the end of it. It has to be cleaned up, welded together, assembled, and colored, the finish put on it, which is called a patina, and this is, these are all very uh, time-consuming and expensive processes. It's expensive whether you do it yourself or whether you hire a foundry to do it. I choose to do the molds myself, the original and molds myself, and then I hire the foundry to do the metal pouring, the assembly, the grinding, then I come in at the last minute for the patina, and final finish.
0: Does that make it clear? Yeah, absolutely. So you 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 basically. So so what you're doing is the same process for something <clears throat> that is the size of a paperweight, and it's it's pretty much identical for something up to the size of a ma- you did a mammoth, a life size mammoth. Yes. Yeah, I had no idea when I was six years old climbing on the tusks of that mammoth. I just thought, oh, my dad made a mammoth. (laughs) I didn't even get the concept. But then when I got older, I was like, holy mackerel, you made a mammoth. Mm -hmm. So you're obviously casting something up to Mm -hmm. that size in pieces and welding it together as well.
1: Yeah. Well, the mammoth, the mammoth was a lot of pieces. Uh, The mammoth was, I, once again, I did my study models at various scales, various sizes, and I enlarged it myself, and I built a life-size mammoth in wax and plywood and brown paper. Built it up, built a, a, a a rigid armature, you know, much like those wooden toys that you see dinosaurs or other skeletons where the pe- sheets of wood interlock
0: and they they slot together. Yeah, well, you, you got those for me when I was a kid. I remember having a T-Rex, a pterodactyl, all kinds. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, so I made very much the same thing, but instead of using a real thin sheet of wood, I used half-inch plywood. And on the Mammoth, it actually took uh, 50 sheets of half-inch plywood, 50 sheets of half-inch plywood, and a bundle of four by twos, or as they say in the U.S., two by fours. Right, right, <clears throat> yeah. So these a whole bundle of uh, housing studs, and and I used all of it up. And then after I got this this slotted together wooden toy sculpture, I covered it with brown paper glued together with homemade wallpaper paste. Just plain white flour, boiled in water and applied as a paste, and I made my own tape, and I I covered the entire wooden structure with this paper tape, and that gave me a surface over which to put my sculpture medium. In that case, it was a wax medium. Later, I went to almost entirely to a clay-based medium, but
0: uh, wow. it, it was a big job. We're we're coming up on nearly two hours. I could and I have we have talked for hours and hours and hours in the past. Normally, we, we'd have conversations that would go all mm-hmm. afternoon. Um, I'm going to have to get you to come back on the podcast, Dad. If you if you join me again, we'll. <laughs> no i don't think so I, this isn't this is enough i mean really don't push your luck Oh, uh, I'll don't tw- twist my arm i'll All twist right. i will twist your arm hey listen I, I i before before we we part company this afternoon let's um let let me bring it back to to the business side of art and monetizing your creative passion um with the benefit of this experience you've gathered over your life finding yourself in the position that you are now making a really comfortable living from your art I look I, I I'm not afraid to say it. you are the most successful artist I personally know I've met a lot of artists mm. and I just you now of course I look up to you dad but I I I recognize you as being one of the most Amazing success stories that I've that I've ever come across and that's been enormously beneficial for me because I got to see this this example in you So let's say you had the opportunity To go back and give your younger self the benefit of this experience and the success that you have now What would be the advice that you'd give to yourself as a 12 year old? As a 12 year old Or a 10 year old whatever you as, as a kid
1: a I, I would say this Practice. Practice your artwork. Do it. We learn by doing. Experience is everything. Just do it. Now, I didn't have to be encouraged to do it. I was driven to do it. I was obsessed about it. I was compulsive about it. I had to do it. Nobody asked me to do it. They had to stop me from doing it to get me to do my math or my homework or whatever. If given the opportunity, I was doing my artwork. So you you know, if if somebody has, if you have to hold your own feet to the fire, perhaps that's not your calling. Don't don't torture yourself if you don't really if you don't enjoy this more than anything else. Well, perhaps you're looking in the wrong direction for satisfaction. Mm -hmm. You should follow your heart. You should do what really speaks to you. If it's artwork, great, then do it. Practice it. Do it over and over. You know, there are sayings, and I like like old wives' tales or adages or old cliché sayings. I like those. I collect them. There's a saying that says everybody has 20-20 vision in hindsight. And I've added to that. You can have hindsight too. 20-20 vision. All you have to do is be prepared to do it over again. That's the secret to improving the quality of the artwork. Do it again, and then do it again, and then do it again. And it reminds me of uh, something I saw on television when televisions were little tiny screens and black and white only. And on Saturday morning, there was an art show. And these were terribly badly produced shows. But on one of these art shows, they had a guest, and he was a, a Chinese, painter. He did brush, Chinese uh, uh, ink brush paintings. And he did, I can still remember, he did uh, some bamboos, uh, bamboo stalks was one painting, and another painting was a little crab. And it really got my attention. It was so simple, so elegant. He had it down so well. And he told the audience in his broken English that the way to do this is that one year he chose to do the crab. So he painted the crab. Every day he painted that crab painting. One painting every day for a year. And at the end of the year, he knew how to paint the crab. And then he spent a year painting the bamboo. Every day he did it over again until it was magic. He just reached his arm out with his paintbrush, touched the canvas and it left a perfect leaf. It was shocking. You can apply, you don't have to be so extreme about it, but you can apply that same principle to improve your artwork or improve anything else. Persistence. It's not over until you say, that's it, that's as good as I can do. And you know what? That you're not telling yourself the truth when you say that, because you always can do better. All you have to do is be prepared to do it again.
0: Well, Dad, this has been awesome having you on the podcast. A real pleasure for me. Um, Tell people out there where they can see some of your work. Well, obviously, they can
1: see some of my work, a lot of my work at your local zoo. So if you are near one of the big zoos, it's likely they'll have some bronze and that's likely to have my name on it. I, I think I have more bronzes in more zoos than anyone else. Um, if they can't get to the zoo or can't find my work or just want to look it up, you can look it up online at tomkishler.com. And there you'll see pictures of my bronzes
0: in zoos. Thank you so much for doing this, Dad. It's been awesome. And I'll look forward to getting you on the podcast again sometime. Great. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Well, I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Endeavor podcast and a big thank you to my dad, Tom Tischler, for joining me. You know, it's kind of funny going back and listening to the stories that I grew up with over again. It kind of ties a bow around the whole experience and wraps it up for me in such a way that I can't help but feel an enormous sense of gratitude for where I find myself today I recognize now that it wouldn't have been possible without people like my father and other mentors that have come up along the way. So I hope you don't mind indulging me here, and I hope you really have enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed sharing this with you. I'm sure after you've already listened to this conversation, you can hear where I get a lot of my one-liners from that I use in my YouTube videos. You might hear a few of those recognizable phrases, because... Of course, I got them from Dad. Now, if you'd like to see more of my father's work, then simply visit www.tomtischler.com. And again, bear in mind, that's a really old website. But if you grit your way through it, there are some photographs of his bronze sculptures on there. And also, he's got his bronzes, as you heard, in over 100 zoos in mainly the United States. So you never know. If you're listening to this in the United States and you head to your local zoo, you might see one of my dad's sculptures there. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, then please take a minute to leave me a rating or a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. It helps a podcast be a little bit more discoverable, and perhaps some other people out there might be able to add this to their creative journey. And I really appreciate it. Now, of course, you can find out more about me on my website at www.andrewtischler.com. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe. It's free to do so. Simply hit that subscribe tab into your name and email address, and I'll be in touch with you regularly. I really look forward to spending more time with you again soon in another edition of The Creative Endeavor.